Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at candeochurch.com. Good morning, family. How are we doing? Awesome. It's great to be with you. Uh, I'm curious, have you ever watched like a really good movie that had an incredible ending to it, but then it, it kept going? I, I remember a few years back, I went to the theaters and watched American Sniper with some friends. If you guys have ever seen the movie, you know there's some real drama in there. And I remember there's that scene, you know, when he's on his fourth tour and he completes his mission and he takes out the enemy sniper and there's this suspenseful moment where he's running to get into the Humvee, you know, and you just remember the phone call that he just had with his wife as he's crying like, I'm ready to come home. I'm ready to come home, you know? And you're like, get in that thing. Like, he, like I hope he makes it. And if there's dust, you can't see very well. And then, and then the door closes and he's just like, you finally like breathe this sense of relief of like, oh man. And I remember just watching that breathing all of a sudden, feeling this great sense of just appreciation for Chris Kyle and men and women like him that serve and sacrifice so much for the freedoms that we have. And just feel like, wow, that was a great movie. And then it like kept going. I don't know if anybody else was with me. Like I was kind of confused when like, he's like walking around the house in his Wranglers and his like toy pistols. And he's like, playing with his kids. I'm like, where is this going? I, I had no idea, and I won't ruin it for you if you haven't seen it yet. I had no idea that there was more to the story. I, I didn't know Chris Kyle's story. And that is the only time in my life I've ever watched a movie and actually like sat through all the credits. I was just stunned, just speechless. As chapter 21, as we dive into today, is like that. And hopefully this message will leave you speechless. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. <laughs> but, but it's like that in that chapter 20 was like the perfect ending. Like Jesus came, he had a, he had a mission, and his mission was to reveal the Father and to bring light and life into the world. And so far, we've seen Jesus do so many incredible things. He's healed the disabled. He's given sight to the blind. He's walked on the water. He's fed 5,000 people. He's raised someone from the dead twice. He did that. He's, he's called people to trust in him for life and for salvation. And he finished his mission by going to the cross and laying down his life for his sheep, and not only laying his life down, then rising again in all authority and all power. And then he appears to his disciples. He sends them out. And then we get these words at the end of chapter 20 that Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of the disciples that are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. It is the perfect ending. But John keeps writing. You get chapter 21. And I want to ask the question, why? The reason there's chapter 21 is there has been resolution in like every way except there's one major loose end at this point. 
Peter. Because ever since verse 40 of chapter 1, I mean, you go all the way back to chapter 1, ever since that point, Peter has been a key player in this gospel. Alongside Jesus, he has been a key player in carrying the plot line of this entire gospel. And for two chapters now, he has been noticeably absent. The last time that we saw him was in chapter 18. And he was swearing up and down that he didn't know Jesus. Didn't know this man. Denying his friend And just like Jesus predicted, somewhere in the distance, a rooster crowed. And you get to chapter 21, and it just seems like there is no ability to end this gospel until Peter has been brought back in. And here's why I'm glad chapter 21 exists. Because if you have ever started strong for Jesus and then failed and then began to wonder, could God ever use a person like you? Guys, chapter 21 is for you. Because this isn't Peter's story. Chapter 21 is not Peter's story. This is our story. And what we see in chapter 21 is we see how Jesus addresses failures and failure. And so last week, as Jake walked through chapter 21, we saw how Jesus addresses doubt. Today, we're going to see how Jesus addresses failure. And if you want to label yourself a failure, failures, how does Jesus address people like us? So I want to just kind of walk quickly through verses 1 through 14 as they kind of set the stage for some key conversations here as Jesus addresses failures. Uh, First of all, in chapter 21, the first words are after this. I want to just remind you, because you go after this, like after what? You've not been with us for a while with John. You maybe don't know what's kind of going on. But after this is essentially referring to the fact that at this point, where we sit in the narrative of the Bible is that Jesus has been raised from the dead, but he has yet to ascend to his place in glory. There's some time between when Jesus rises from the dead and he ascends to the place of glory. And we're between that period. And as he was raised from the dead, he then goes and he appears to his disciples You guys read that last week if you were here, right? But he appears to his disciples, shows them that he's alive, but Thomas isn't in the room. So Thomas drops the ultimatum, the ultimatum that's going to get him labeled forever, is doubting Thomas. But he lays down the ultimatum. He says, hey, unless I get to place my finger in the holes of his hands and the holes on his side, did you catch it? He said, I will never believe. Unless I get that, I'm never believing. So a week later, Jesus literally walks through a wall and he looks at Thomas. He goes, how you like me now? How you like me now, Thomas? And at that point, Thomas believes. And after this refers to the fact that those things have taken place. And now what we're about to see here is Jesus's third appearance to his disciples. So what we've got here is we've got Peter We've got Thomas, we've got Nathaniel, we've got the sons of Zebedee, which is James and John. And then we've got two other disciples that are unnamed, which I feel so bummed for them. How would you like to be those disciples? Right, this was your moment to be in the Bible. Get name dropped. And John just goes, and there's like two other guys. I can remember who they were. And Peter, who's often the leader, says, hey, let's go fishing. The other guys go, sweet, we'll join you. They go off, go fishing, fish all night and catch Nothing. 
At daybreak the next day, a voice comes from the shore, and they can't make out who it is because I think it's too early in the day. You know how that is. Like, it's just it's twilight. You can't quite see at a distance, like, who people are. But they hear from shore, like, the words that no true fisherman ever wants to hear. Friends, you haven't caught anything, have you? Right? Anybody that's ever been fishing, you know that fishing is just one gigantic test of your patience. Like, you want to be sanctified in patience? Go fishing or raise four kids. Either one of those. Like, you get to pick. I chose four kids, and now I don't have time to fish. But, um, but if you're a fisherman, you know you'd never want to hear those words. Like, that's like the worst thing somebody could say to you as a fisherman. Oh, you haven't caught anything, have you? I can see your nets are kind of empty. It's like, thanks a lot. Actually, if you keep reading them, I think what he says next is even worse than the thing before. So like, they're even a little bit frustrated, which I would naturally be. I think I'm reading this into it. It's the next thing that he says that really cracks me up. It's like, hey, you should try casting on the other side of your boat. Which you know, like when you're tired and frustrated as a fisherman, when all of a sudden your kid comes up, it's like, dad, you should cast over there. It's like, ah, oh, son, it's not that easy. I'm good at this. But you just feel you're embarrassed, right? But they do it. Jesus says, hey, cast your net on the other side of the boat. They don't know it's Jesus yet. They throw their nets in and it works. And one of the disciples who's described as the disciple that Jesus loved, he's the first to kind of put it all together. He goes, it's Jesus. Like he's able to figure out like, like the voice that we heard, that, that's Jesus. And Peter, which I love, like Peter is such a classic, like ready, fire, aim type of individual. I mean, without seemingly thinking, which is like true to form, he just wraps up his outer garment around himself and jumps into the water and begins swimming to shore. And I, I kind of wonder at what point he realized that like that wasn't the fastest way to get back to land. Like we invented boats for a reason. I don't know. But we get to that moment then when they get to the shore and Jesus is sitting by this charcoal fire and a book that has so many epic moments, so many great grandiose scenes with so many people ends with just a simple breakfast among friends. Pretty cool. Before we move forward and look at verses 15 through 19 specifically, I just want to bring two things to your attention because I cannot read these first 14 verses without thinking of a couple of other things. First thing that I, I think of when I read this text is all of this sounds like, first of all, like oddly familiar. And I had to go back to it. I went back to Luke 5. If you want to read this some other time, like, like, like write down Luke 5. But Luke 5, like this is how James and John and Peter actually first met Jesus. Was Jesus was teaching along the Sea of Galilee, same spot, same general area. And he's teaching the crowds are so huge that he decides to get in a person's boat. That boat actually belonged to Peter. And he says, hey, put off from the shore a little bit. And he sits down and he teaches the masses. At a certain point then as he's teaching, he looks at Peter and he says, Peter, hey, drop down your nets. And he goes, Master, we've, we've been fishing all day and all night. We haven't caught anything. But if you, if you say so, if you say so. And so Peter puts down his nets into the water and he pulls back such a haul of fish that he calls his partners, his fishing partners, as Luke refers to them. His partners are James and John. They come over with their boat, and as they pull the net up, the fish are so plentiful that it actually fills up both of their boats that they begin to sink. And at that, 
Peter looks at Jesus, says, Master, I, I am a sinner. Go away from me. And Jesus doesn't reject him. Actually, what he does is he looks at Peter and he says, follow me and I'll make you a fisher of men. And that's when Peter, James, and John began to follow Jesus. We've been here before. Same place, pretty similar situation. That was the first thing I noticed when I read this text. I'm like, we've been here before. The second thing that caught my attention is a little more subtle, but maybe it caught yours as well, was the phrase there that's used that Jesus is sitting by a charcoal fire. There's only one other time in the Bible, or the Gospels, I should say specifically, that the words charcoal fire are laid out. And it's in John's Gospel. John 18, 18. Anybody have any idea what happened the last time the words charcoal fire was mentioned in the Gospel of John? You know what happened then? It was when Peter was warming himself around a charcoal fire that he denied Jesus three times. I don't think that the fact that there's a charcoal fire there on the shore and Jesus is pulling Peter and the other disciples to it is any coincidence. So two things that caught my attention, and I believe they set the stage for what Jesus is is intentionally wanting to do here in these next few verses as he addresses Peter's failure. So let's look specifically now at verses 15 through 19. It says in verse 15 that when they had eaten breakfast, and I want you to imagine like Jesus like pulling Peter aside and maybe they're beginning to walk the shoreline here. I think it's probably the two of them, maybe John's walking somewhere in the distance. But when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these? I want to pause because I want to make sure that something here is clear because there's a question that people ask, like, well, what's he referring to when he says, do you love me more than these? Like, one of the ways you can read this is like, is Jesus saying, like, do you love me more than these fish? Which may sound like a silly thing. It's like, love me more than food? Like, of course he loves me more than and I, it could be the fact that like, like, like fishing was like Peter's occupation. Like, Peter, do you love me more than like your occupation, your old way of life? Do you love, like, that's one way you could read this. Like, do you love me more than these fish? Another way that you can read this is like, do you love me more than you love your friends? Right? You love these men, but do you love me more than you love your friends? Do you love me more than you love these fish? Do you love me more than you love your friends? There's a couple of different ways you can read it. I actually read it a third way, where I believe that these refers to, do you love me more than these other men love me? And what he's saying here is like, do you, do you love me more than these other men? And I think he's, he's, he's going after something specific because if you remember, when Jesus had a conversation with his disciples and he was telling them, I'm going to be crucified and all of you are going to be scattered. Peter responded back very quickly. Hey, Jesus, when that happens, if all these other wimps deny you, I will never deny you. I think the question, what he's poking at here in Peter is he's like, Peter, do you, do you really love me more than these other men? He's going somewhere here. 
Peter replies, yes, Lord, he said to him, you know that I love you. And likely without flinching, breaking a gaze, Jesus looks back at him and says, feed my lambs. A second time, he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said to him, you know that I love you. And again, shepherd my sheep, he told him. And he asked him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved that he had asked him the third time, do you love me? See, to this point, Jesus has interacted with his disciples. Peter's seen Jesus now a couple of times. And while Jesus has interacted with his disciples, Peter's failure in particular has yet to be addressed. And when Jesus asks this question a third time, it all becomes abundantly clear to Peter what Jesus is going after. And it's all brought to the forefront. And Peter grieves because his failure is brought out into the spotlight and it's now standing between him and Jesus. He knows why he's been asked three times and he's now fully grabbing onto his failure. Guys, if there's one thing that is true about Peter, if you want to talk about a significant flaw in who he was, Peter was chronically overconfident. Like time and time again, Peter overestimated like the, the solid nature of his devotion to Jesus. He was constantly with his mouth cashing checks that his body could not cash. Like that's just the way that Peter operated. And it's easy for us here, and I've, I've listened to a number of other teachers like teach this passage where we can start to insert our own narratives, and I don't want to do this here. Because it's easy here to go, well, maybe Peter, the way that Peter often dealt with his sin, because one of the ways we can deal with sin is we can just minimize our sin and downplay it. Like, maybe Peter just didn't actually see his sin as a big deal because in his mind, they were just little sins that weren't a big deal. And so here... The surprising nature of the grief for him was maybe because like he, he sincerely didn't see his failures as that big of a deal. We can do that too. We can minimize and downplay our sin. Is that what Peter's doing here? And he's being pulled out into the light and away from that. Is it possible that Peter's the type of person that isn't minimizing or downplaying his sin, but he just has this way of justifying it, right? There's some people in the room that we do the same thing. The way that we handle our sin is we just kind of work to this reasoning of like, yeah, but everybody fails, but I'm better than most people. And Peter could list off all the things that he's done for Jesus, all the things that he sacrificed for Jesus and go, yeah, so my failures aren't as big as like what I've sacrificed. And so I'm, I'm good, right? And he could justify it. And you actually see in this text him working so hard Right, he's swimming to Jesus. He's the one that actually went back and grabbed a fish to put it on the fire when there was already fish and bread on the fire. So I don't even know if they really needed the fish if Jesus was just testing him. Like, that's one thing that you could read into this. Another way that you could read this text as far as like what's behind all this with Peter is, is I wonder if Peter, he was fully aware of his sin. Well, what defined Peter's life was shame. Guys, I... I'm the type of person that that's how I deal with my sin. 
I'm the type of person that when, I'm, when I fail, I don't need you to point it out to me. Like I was that kid in high school doing like, like high school sports that when I made a mistake, I didn't need a coach to start pointing at me. It's like, hey, you know that you gave up that easy touchdown, right? It's like, I, I'm, I'm aware of that. The whole crowd, the whole stadium of people in Elgin, Iowa that holds 15 people is aware that I just gave up an easy touchdown. Like I, I don't need you to point that out to me. But what I'll often do with my sin is I'll just, in a, in a way, try to avoid it or I'll just like shove it deep down, I'll hide it and I'll just bury it under layers of shame. And then the way that it expresses itself is just an abundant overconfidence where I try to convince everybody else and myself included of a lie that I'm good. So we can read a lot of stuff in here and go like, this is what's happening with Peter. This is what happened with Peter and all that. Guys, I just simply wanna say this, I don't know. I don't know what Peter had done with this failure in the time between when he failed and now this moment where Jesus is bringing it into the light. And I don't know what you do with your sin when you fail. There are a million different ways for us to not deal with our sin and failure. Minimizing doesn't deal with it. Justifying it doesn't deal with it. Burying it under layers of shame doesn't deal with it. There's a million different ways that we cannot deal with our sin and our failures. There's only one way for us to actually deal with it. And what this text really highlights is that the one way that we have to deal with our failure begins with a very simple and a very important step. Grief. Dealing rightly with our failure begins with grief. Very important step. This moment here is not Jesus being hard on Peter. Like what the world will tell you is that you need to surround yourself with positive people who are going to tell you positive things and fill your mind with positive thoughts. Honestly, guys, the sooner that you come to grips with the fact that you have failed and are a failure, the better. And so this isn't Jesus being a jerk to Peter. This isn't just some like version of like tough love as he pulls him out to the charcoal fire. Like Peter, remember this? When he, when he pulls him into this moment, this is Jesus tenderly loving Peter. He's trying to bring something into the light that Peter will finally see. And if he sees it, maybe finally grieve over it. And if he grieves over it, will finally begin to hate. Because guys, I've said this before. You will not hate what you don't grieve. And you won't grieve what you don't see. I'll say that again. Because you will not hate what you don't grieve and you will not grieve what you don't see. And so Jesus is pulling Peter back to his spot of failure. He's trying to pull it to center stage and he wants to deal with it. When you look at this moment, 
Don't see tough love. Don't see like Jesus being like a jerk, like a negative friend, right? Only a bully or just like only a truth speaker while they need grace. Guys, what you should see here, this is the work of a great shepherd who loves his sheep. That's what this is here. And I love it because when I look at this passage, what I see is I see what's true of Jesus is that Jesus isn't after the masses. He's also after people. And in this situation, he's after Peter. And he's after Peter's heart. And he's trying to address this failure in Peter's life. Because guys, one thing I've learned in life is that it's really hard for you to move forward in life when you don't address the failures of your past. In fact, I would say you cannot move forward in life without first addressing the failures of your past. We know Peter's charcoal moment. We know what his failure was. Can I just ask you guys, what are the charcoal moments, like the charcoal fire moments of your life? Like the place of failure that even as I mention it now, like it just puts a pit in your stomach. The thing that you've minimized, you downplayed, you've either justified, you've buried with a bunch of shame. Like what are the charcoal fires of your life? I'll ask you this as a follow-up question. What have you done with those charcoal fires? Those failures, those places of failure? The things that now as they get brought into light, you, you're ashamed of. Do you have a tendency to minimize, justify, downplay? Do you bury it under shame and just try to grit your teeth and just try to, try to move on? What do you do with your charcoal fires? Those moments. The grief that we're looking for here, like what I want to do, what this text is trying to do, what Jesus is trying to do with Peter is like, he's trying to get him to see his failure and then to truly grieve over it. And there's a difference between like worldly grief that leads to just a remorse, like ah, I regret that I did that, and a godly grief, like a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. And I want to ask you like, as you see your sin, where is it leading you to? Do you feel bad or is it leading you to repentance? What's on display here is you see not just the work of the great shepherd, you see the work of the great surgeon as Peter's being cut open. This is gospel surgery right before us. And gospel surgery is painful. We can see it in Peter's life. It is, it is painful. It's causing him grief. And gospel surgery is hard because you have to open up and let Jesus into the darkest parts of your life and let him work. Have you let him do that with all of your areas of failure? And I mean all of them. Not just the ones that you're comfortable with him going in and addressing, but all of them. And this is a little bit of a, a rabbit trail but I think it's, it's, worth, it's worth going on because it was super helpful for me. But I was actually just in an event, a gathering about two, three weeks ago where 
the speaker at our Salt Network gathering. His name is David Loveless. And he, he pulled out this observation. It was super helpful for me because I've always, I've always looked at James 5.16 and had a little bit of like a, a, re, like a pushback for it. If you don't know James 5.16, what it says in there is it says that we should confess our sins to one another. And I'm like, yeah, but I'm, I'm not Catholic. I don't need to confess my sin to you and ask for you to forgive me. Like, I don't need to go to a priest. I, don't need, I can go directly to Jesus. Like, that's the beauty of, of what we believe about the gospel, that I've sinned against God. And when I sin, if I take it to him and I talk to him about it and he forgives me, we're good. So why all this pressure? Why do we talk about this a lot as a church about like the need for us to like walk in transparency with one another? Like why, why should I confess my sins to you? That's always been like, honestly guys, a subtle pushback I've had in my heart and life about like confessing sin to those around me. And he just read the rest of the verse for me. Because what James 5.16 says, confess your sins to one another. Why? It doesn't say that you can be forgiven. Or Jesus does that. Do you know what it says? Confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. Healed. I'm not confessing my sin to you so that I can be forgiven. Jesus does that. But there is something about walking in transparency with the people around me in my life, those safe people in my circle that is healing for me. People are going to surround me and pray for me. That's so what the people I need in my life, they're not gonna be the spiritual police that beat me up every time I make a mistake. I need like safe people in my life that when I'm recognizing my failures and I'm like opening up about them in that context, they too, as failures, recognize the need for Jesus to forgive that only he can do, but they would pray for me and encourage me and urge me on in the strength of the spirit to be a different person. We're going to come back off the rabbit trail and keep moving through this text because we've got limited time. Because I want to move beyond just talking about Peter's grief, which is very important. Peter's grief was step one. I want to move from Peter's grief and I want to talk about his restoration. I think, guys, in this entire chapter and all the things I'm about to say to you, this is the most simple and most important observation in this entire text, okay? So don't miss this. I want to talk about Peter's restoration here. In light of Peter's failure, what is it that Jesus asked of Peter? What did he ask him? He say back, what did Jesus ask Peter? What's the question? Three times, do you love me? I found that incredibly odd. Because when you read this, it seems like the most natural thing, at least coming from our perspective, the most natural question that Jesus could have asked Peter is like, hey, Peter, do you promise me you'll never fail me again? That's the most natural. Honestly, that maybe would have been easier on Peter because he would have said yes. <laughs> like, that's like classic Peter moment. Like, I will always overpromise and underdeliver. You know, so yes, Jesus, if you, if you want me to promise, I'll never do that again. I will totally do that. But he never does, it doesn't ask him that. Jesus doesn't ask Peter, do you promise you'll never fail me again? Because he knows that's a promise he can't keep. He will fail him again. Galatians 2 is an example. Guys, we see the gospel right here because we saw Peter fall short of Jesus because of flawed actions and he wasn't restored to Jesus because of better actions. It's not how the gospel works. 
We fall short of Jesus because of our flawed actions, but we're restored with Jesus because of professed love. Like this is the reality of it is finished on display. When Jesus cried out, it is finished from the cross, what he was declaring is that all the things you've ever done wrong, this entire bill that you have racked up over the course of your life, and you will continue to rack up over the course of your life, all of that has been forever and always, big triple stamp over the top says paid in full. And all that Jesus demands is not your perfection. He demands your heart. Because he knows if he has your heart, everything else will come. If you love me, you'll obey me. If I have your heart, all of that will continue to move. But I'm not asking for perfection, Peter. Do you love me? Failures in the room this morning. Can I ask you that for Jesus? Do you love Jesus? If the answer is yes, then regardless of how you feel about whether you're worthy or not, or whether you're clean right now or not, what is being told to you by the truth of Scripture is that you have relationship with Christ. But he goes on. It gets even better. Because I, I, I love that Jesus' response after he says, do you love me, is not just to look back in Peter and say, you're forgiven. Which also would have been most natural. Like, I totally forgive you, Peter, it's fine. I forgive you. Now, the gospel doesn't end with forgiveness. It moves from forgiveness into usefulness. Like, if you ever wanted to ask that question of like, is it possible that God could ever use a person who's failed, who started strong and then failed? Could God ever use a person like me, like that? Chapter 21 is screaming forever and always, absolutely, absolutely. Because the gospel doesn't end with just forgiveness. It moves from forgiveness into usefulness and beyond. And so as Peter's being brought back in here and as we're being brought back in as failures, Jesus doesn't just say, For, forgiven, now go sit on the end of the bench while the more holy players run out on the field and do the stuff that I want them to do representing me and wearing our jersey. No, no, no. Peter's failure did not disqualify him from future ministry. But his failure was addressed the grace of Christ, and he was useful. Guys, nothing causes me to marvel more at the grace of God than the fact that Jesus doesn't just forgive people like you and me. He actually finds us useful, puts us to work, gives us things to do, and then actually uses us to change the world. That blows me away. It's the greatest evidence of grace in my life. We'll continue here. So then Peter go, Jesus goes on speaking to Peter says, truly I tell you that when you were younger, you would tie your own belt and you'd walk wherever you wanted to. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will tie you and carry you to where you do not want to go. And he said this to indicate by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. Peter would 
have his life cut short. He wouldn't live to see the end of his life naturally. He would be killed for feeding lambs and shepherding sheep. Jesus tells Peter all this, and then he looks at him and he says, follow me. Second time now in Jesus' life that he's told Peter, in Peter's life that Jesus told him, follow me. This is the hardest question I'm going to ask you today. If you knew today that saying yes to Jesus meant that you were going to die for him, that you wouldn't live to watch your daughter get married and walk down the aisle, like you weren't going to get all those things, like your life was going to be cut short. If you knew that today, would you still say yes to Jesus? Because that's what's getting put before Peter. All the cards are on the table for Peter now. He knows what life with Jesus looks like. He knows the ups and the downs. He knows what works in the kingdom of God, like faith to be able to walk on water. And he knows what doesn't work, that you don't take the kingdom by force and use swords and cut off people's ears. Like that didn't work. And he now knows what it's going to cost him. When Jesus says, follow me, all the mystery is gone for Peter. I can understand if it caused him to kind of fall back and just like pause for a second. Curious where you would be. So Peter starts looking around and he sees this other disciple who's kind of walking behind them. So Peter turned around and he saw this disciple that Jesus loved following them. The one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and asked, Lord, who is the one that's going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about him? I love this. Jesus is like, hey, if I want him to remain until I come, Jesus answered, what is that to you? As for you, follow me. Stop looking around you, Peter, and comparing your story to everybody else's story. Just you, you be faithful. Christian, stop looking around and comparing your story to everybody else's story. Like, you be faithful to what God has called you to. So John keeps writing. So this rumor spread to the brothers and sisters that this disciple the disciple whom Jesus loved, right, would not die. Yet Jesus did not tell them that he would not die, but if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? And then these final verses, the real ending of the Gospel of John. This is the disciple. John all of a sudden identifies himself. Actually, the disciple I've kept referring to as the disciple whom Jesus loved. What a beautiful title and confidence to have that that was you. Right, and is you, right? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. And we know that his testimony is true. I saw him all with my own eyes. And he writes these words. It's a fitting closing for our entire series. He writes, and there are many other things that Jesus did, which if every one of them had been written down, I suppose not even the, the world itself could contain the books that would be written. I wrote on everything that I saw Jesus do or say and all of his beauty. I, I, the whole world can't even hold the books. Guys, we've been in the gospel of John for 45 weeks. We could, we could unpack this gospel every day for the rest of our lives and not exhaust the full beauty of Christ. But we have tasted something, right? We've experienced his goodness. We've seen his beauty. We've savored who he is. 
God has challenged us in the deepest parts of our being and brought things to the light and has given us much to ponder. And so for today, for this series, I guess we'll just say it's enough for now, right? 45 beautiful weeks. But I think that as we close this gospel, guys, there's no, there's no better way to close out this series than for us to take the Lord's Supper together. And so hopefully you grabbed one of these on the way in. And I'd encourage you, if you've not put your faith in Christ, just sit this out. Like you can hear us and, and, and like watch this unfold and, and cry out and pray to God, but, but leave these elements alone until you place your faith in Christ. But here's what I wanna do, Christian. Because there's no way that we can close this book, especially after looking at chapter 21, without addressing the charcoal fires of our life, the places of failure, maybe the deep hidden things that we don't let anybody else know. And I would ask you, like, right now, you need to bring that to Jesus. And this week, bring that into your safe circles. I just want to create space right now for confession for grief, for repentance, and then we'll take these together. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.